0: as we open your word this morning and look at the psalm, specifically this psalm that talks about fathers and children, I pray that you would give us a sensitivity to hear, Lord, the calling to which you have called us, that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted, we would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, Lord, and we would be motivated and empowered in the direction that we need to go. We pray these things for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, as we continue our study in the book of Psalms, we've come to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a popular song for understanding the importance of the children God gives us. So I encourage you to uh, to open your Bible to Psalm 78, to follow along as I read. And would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 8, not the entire chapter. A maskell of Asaph, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Please have a seat. Well, living here in the United States, we often hear opposing voices when it comes to the way in which our children ought to be educated. I'm sure that you're familiar with that. You've probably heard many of those voices. And I'm not necessarily talking about the voices that would be promoting this book or that book. They're promoting the the drag queen shows or the, the explicit graphic, other kinds of things to elementary kids, and I'm not talking about those things per se, although those certainly are voices that we're hearing as well. I'm talking about the implicit voice that's asking, that's a, that's, that comes opposed of who is actually responsible for educating our children. That's really the big question that we hear, competing voices, and we've heard that competing voice actually for many, many decades, if not centuries, if not millennium who is responsible to educate our children when you have some extremes of course you have you go back in time you have uh in the ancient days of the greek empire uh, when athens and sparta were competing you had two different kinds of thought philosophically and and from a government uh, standpoint and, and sparta represented the ultimate in which the state was responsible for all of your children or you would literally hand them over at the age of six and wouldn't see them again because the ultimate responsibility was to raise up children who could serve the state so we could see that so is that where we are today well no we're not certainly there and but the question comes who's responsible for educating our children is it the school system is it the teachers or is it the parents And those voices are somewhat loud Uh, You may recall, not too long ago, the governor race that was happening in Virginia in uh, 2021, where you had former Governor Terry McAuliffe uh, declare in a gubernatorial debate in, in 2021, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Now, he was favored to win the election. He was the incumbent. Yet many would attribute him saying this statement, which set his campaign into the tank, uh, because his opponent, Glenn Youngkin, took advantage of that and championed the idea of parental rights and education. That was a big, a big deal. Now there was things that happened as a result of that, as more and more things were coming out as, in terms of what was being taught in the schools, and, and parents beginning to see those things as a result of their kids being sequestered at home and doing online learning or Zoom learning with their teachers, and for the first time they were perhaps being exposed to some of the things that their, their kids were, were being taught, and it brought some measure of concern, for it was not necessarily things that they agreed with, and so parents in in increased numbers, started to go to the school board meetings and voicing their frustration and expressing their concern over the things that were being taught. To the point that it, uh, uh, that the uh, National School Boards Association sent a letter to President Biden, declaring that America's public schools and its education leaders are under an immediate threat, implying perhaps that it was parents who were bringing this threat to the school boards and the teachers. Now, they didn't say that explicitly, but that's what was drawn out of it. Later, they apologized for using the language they did that certainly seemed to imply that parents were the one being targeted. As the big talk was, well, are parents now being put on the FBI's potential domestic terrorist list? You remember those conversations. No. But it all boils down to really who is responsible for the education of our children. Now, you can get outraged when you hear those things talked about well of course parents should have the right to say what's going on in the school systems but I can also sympathize with the superintendents and with the teachers as well I have been a little league coach for years and years both in basketball and soccer and football and I can tell you the hardest part about being a little league coach is the parents (laughs) it's not the kids because every parent has a particular view of their child and where they should be playing on the field what his skill levels are, and they're not always the same what they think they are and what they actually are. And so there's often a lot of conflict from parents about who should play, what position, and how much time should they be playing. So I can somewhat sympathize with the school boards and with the teachers who really would rather not have the parents up in their business. Because if you think about it, when you have a thousand parents, coming before the school board, and they all have a thousand different opinions of what ought to be taught, you know, you think, well, what do you do? It's a hard place to be. So it boils down, is our job to try and change the public education system, because they're the ones responsible for educating our kids, or are we to recognize that we as parents, especially fathers, have been given the responsibility to educate your, kid, your kids. Now, I don't mean to pick on any particular school system. I have said in the past over and over that it's not. there's no place in the Bible that dictates you should send your kid to public school or private school or home school or that says you can't send them to one of those places. I'm simply saying that what we, what is, where we are in our culture is that it has, become, and it has become the default notion that the ones responsible for educating our kids is this school system. More specifically, this public school system. So we assume that the faithful th- thing for me to do with my kids is just to send them off and abdicate the responsibility of education to the school system. Now again, I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't send your kid to public school system. That, you're missing my point if you're hearing me say that. It's simply saying that we are clearly not given permission to abdicate the responsibility of our children's education to the public school system, which means... If you want to, as the the language is, pillage from the Egyptians and take advantage of the opportunities that the public school system has to offer, that's fine. But don't do so without some awareness of what your kid is being taught. Because at the end of the day, when the Lord is looking down and saying, who shall I hold responsibility for what this kid knows, it's not going to be the teachers at his public school or the superintendents who are picking the curriculum it's going to be the parent of that child because they're the ones held responsible for the education of their children so you need to know Well, what is it that my kids are being taught if i'm sending them to school how do i know well know this they're not being taught from a foundation that is solid why do i say that well what is the foundation of solid when we go to the scriptures and we look at the book of proverbs and psalms it says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. Both of those we find in the Psalms and the Proverbs. That's the foundation, the fear of the Lord. And I will tell you that while our school systems may do a lot of things well, that's not where they're starting from. It's not even on their radar that they should be doing that. I can guarantee you they're not, their goal is not to prepare your children to be members of the kingdom of God. That's not their goal. So we just need to be aware of that. And while, while your teachers are not necessarily conspiring against your kid, in fact, they may, you may have excellent teachers. Your, your teachers may have the same worldview that you have. Your superintendent may have the same worldview that you have. But I can guarantee you this, there is an enemy at work that goes deeper than the teachers and the superintendent that is warring against your children. Paul writes in terms of what, whose responsibility is it for the kids. He writes in Ephesians chapter 6. Fathers, notice he addresses fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Old Testament. Moses writes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, you So here you have this very clear instruction. And when Paul says, Fathers, you are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, just a few verses later in that same chapter of Ephesians, he goes on to say this. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, we don't wrestle against the teachers or the superintendents or the school boards. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It is a very real battle going on. And again, I'm not saying don't take advantage of the school systems, whether it's private or public, or homeschool or a co-op. I'm not telling you not to do any of those things. I'm just saying Don't abdicate the responsibility of your children to any one of those groups. Take advantage of what they can offer, perhaps, but don't abdicate the responsibility because there is an enemy waging war against your children. How do I know? Well, that's the story of the whole Old Testament, by the way. (laughs) A war being waged against the children of Israel. So, understand this. The world is not neutral. Parents are responsible for their children, in particular fathers, and that is God's design. This is what we see as a theme of this psalm. Parents, teach your children the stories and commands of God. That's it. That's what I want you to draw out. You don't have to write anything else down. Just remember that. But I do want to explain, well, why? Why do we do that? Because there are some reasons that he gives very specifically, explicitly in this psalm. So as we read about these first five verses, he's laying down the foundation, explaining that, yes, in verse 5 specifically he says, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. He commanded, he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. And by the way, when you think about, well, why is it that parents are supposed to take responsibility or why, why are they supposed to do that and not abdicate? Especially if you think, you know, I've made lots of observations, I see lots of kids who were whose parents advocated responsibility to this school or that school, and they turned out fine. In fact, you may be one of those. I could testify. I grew up in the public school system. My parents never took really any interest or educa- in my education. It, was just not, it, didn't, it wasn't part of their, their uh, the thought process. Not that they were explicitly neglecting it, but they were indeed products of the culture. And the culture says, this is what you do to educate your kids. And here I am, a follower of God. You could say, well, It worked. And maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But I would say this, you know, we don't do things because they work. We do things because God commands them. And God is commanding that you are the one to take responsibility. You are the one to take responsibility. Because I can tell you this, there are times when children who are faithfully raised in the church and have taught the instructions and teaching of the Lord, who later in life are not walking with God. It is not a guarantee. So you don't do it because it's guaranteeing your kid this. You're doing it because it's commanded that you do this. So we do it. So let's talk about some of the whys. I mean, the, the clear why, the first why he gives in verse 6, that the, generation, the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Now, that should encourage us in the sense that if this is the first reason he gives why, that, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, we can say that God has ordained this as an effective means of training. So while it's not necessarily a guarantee he has ordained it to be effective, and in instilling these things upon the next and future generations so that part's clear and then I want you to look at the other reasons that I want to kind of expound in verse 7 and 8 so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So there are several reasons in that. The first one is so that they should set their hope in God. So that they should set their hope in God. When you look around at our world today, one of the things that is sorely missing, especially in young people, is hope. I mean, just thinking about that perspective, you are giving your children. A place to have their hope and it's a real hope i was looking at some of the statistics statistics that came out and i in my search i found a the result of a pew research center survey back in the fall of 2018 which was pre pre-pandemic, pre-pandemic and in this pre-pandemic Situation they, they found they, they surveyed teenagers ages 13 to 17 and found uh, that that seven in ten US teens said anxiety and depression is a major problem among among people their age in the community where they live. This is before the pandemic. I don't know what it is now, but that's not better. It's worse. Our kids are in a situation where they have nothing to put their hope. They don't know where it goes. Is it to be in our uh, teachers at colleges or in schools? Is it to be in the government and what it's doing? Is it to be in what? So one of the main reasons that we would say the reason you want to teach your kids this is so that they have a real basis for hope in this world. Hope. Hope. Let's look at the next piece of that. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, so that they will keep his commandments. Now, if you think about that, the commandments are the way, it's it's showing us how we are to live and we need that because there's a big question mark out there in our society how are we supposed to live and where do we find out this information many of you guys have been going to Sam Sunday School have been learning that the place they're appealing to to figure out what it is that's telling them how they should live is some voice from the internal vague sense of who you are you need to listen to that inner voice listen to your heart you need to follow where it says to go Because it's the, and what they're saying by that, because it is the only place that you can look to for real guidance that you can trust. That's what that's that's saying. This is the only place where we can find real truth. Truth is all personal, it's all relative to you. And in fact, the implication is that you should not be teaching your kids explicitly because you might be rubbing against what their heart is telling them the person they are that's what our society would be saying but we have clear explicit instructions that we are to teach our kids so that they will keep his commands which means they are to live in accord with something that is guiding them external to their own heart and whatever it might be telling them now there's a reason for that too if you go back and remember what we said Um, in the verse right preceding that the first reason that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children think well why is God instructing that is this a universal claim by the way was this a universal instruction that all parents are to do this I don't think it's a universal instruction this instruction was specifically given to the children of Israel now let's back up a little bit and ask, well, why are the children of Israel given this? And the rest of the psalm song, song begins to explain the story of Israel and how they got to be where they are. And we're going to jump into that in a little bit, in a minute. But for the most part, the reason that the next generation is supposed to be trained up and how to follow the commandments of God and have hope is because they have been given a very explicit promise by God. When God called Abraham to, to leave his father and mother, leave his country, and go to a land that I will show you, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people, you and your children and your children's children after you. In fact, this promise is so certain, this plan is so certain, I want you to put a mark on your children when they're eight days old, your, your males, to circumcise them as a sign that they are to be inheritors of this promise. Now that comes with all kinds of implications of responsibility. My children and my children's children are meant to be inheritors of this great kingdom of God. Therefore, there, it is incumbent upon us to train them to be capable of handling this responsibility. I mean, think about it. This is God's kingdom, and He's saying, I'm putting you, Abraham, as, the, as kind of the man representing me in charge. And you're supposed to be training up the next guy who's going to take the lead. And the next guy after that is going to take the lead. And the next guy after that is going to take the lead. You are inheriting a very specific piece of land that is identified with my promise. And by the way, every family in Israel was inheriting a specific part of that promised land. It was their, their tribal inheritance, and it was to remain part of their tribal inheritance. It was not to go somewhere else because it belonged to them from God. When you go and you read the Old Testament, some of you are reading those Bible plans, those the Bible reading plans. Uh, if I see who's awake, how many are reading the Bible in a year or the Bible in a... Some kind of... right. Now, have you come across genealogies? Those are kind of harder to read, right? I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, i got to read name after name after name after name. And they don't really mean anything to you. And if you're like me, you probably just kind of skip through them kind of fast. Sometimes they have a, an interesting story embedded in there. But for the most part, unless you're doing some detailed study and you want to find out who these people were and if they had connections to other people... You just kind of skim over those, and as a result we tend to think, well, genealogies aren't that important. But genealogies in the Bible were actually very important, especially when the people of Israel who had been exiled for 70 years are coming back to the land to know if they had a place of inheritance, they needed to know if their names had been found in the lists of the genealogies. Why? Because it meant they were to be inheritors of this promised land. Inheritors of the kingdom of God. You see, it was very specific. And by the way, we have one of those great books that we'll eventually appeal to, and we we see it on the very final pages of Scripture. It's called the Book of Life. It's a list of the people that are meant to inherit the kingdom of God. So the ordained means that God has put in place to train up those who are to inherit His kingdom is from father to child to prepare them in such an adequate way that they can turn around as a father and teach their child because they too will be inheritors of that promise. Guess what? These, who these commands were not given to? They weren't given to any other nation. You see, this is not a universal instruction. This is a specific instruction for those that are bent to be inheriting of in the kingdom of God. We had, we had a had an interesting, interesting conversation this week. Ed, I'm going to bring up a conversation. I hope that's okay. The, uh, about names. You know, these names are in the Bible. Names tell you something about your identity. Right? I think about my name. My name is Carter. That means my identity is a cart puller. <laughs> Not really. But there's a reason why those people gave names. A name like, a name like Smith or a name like... Brewster. My son is Brewster. You know what that means? He's a beer brewer. And maybe that's what you need to start doing. <laughs> Brew some great craft beer or something. That'd be great. Uh, I joke about that. You know, I, 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 of course, didn't really think about what names mean when I was naming my kids. The, uh, you know, Mercer, he's a merchant. And uh, Fenton, that means he's a son of the swamps. Or a town near the swamps, a fen. Fen was a swamp and a, ton, you know, a town a town near the swamps. So I, I don't think that's really your legacy, son. But, uh, uh, and poor Dunning. You know, Dunning is the letter you send out when someone's delinquent. So, you know, I, don't, I didn't really think about that when I was naming my kids. But, you know, you have the name Smith. Well, Smith, people got the name Smith because that was their identity. They were, they were Smith, Right they were a shaper of metals, or they were a brewer, they are a merchant. Uh, you see those, those things handed down. Well, you are inheriting the kingdom of God. Your name is important. When we look back at the Tower of Babel, you know what they were guilty of? They were guilty of trying to make a name for themselves. Because the idea that Seth means name, they had been given a name by God. You've been adopted into the Lord's family, therefore, you cannot reject the responsibility that goes along with that. Because the fact that you've been given these promises, that you've been given a, a, an inheritance, a kingdom, means there is something about that kingdom that makes it special, a great blessing. Because it just doesn't mean there's this thing imposed upon you. It means you are inheriting something of such great value and worth that the rest of the world is supposed to look upon you and long for it and desire to come and experience the shade of your tents, as it were. Now, what is that? Well, when God brought His people out of their slavery in Egypt and He brought them to the mountain and He, and he, and he uh, called them to Himself, there was, there was someone there at the mountain. That wasn't with them in Egypt. There was a very clear presence of God. And the whole idea of them were being called to where God himself was. And the instructions that Moses was given when he went up on top of that mountain was the the instructions of here's how they are to live. And here's how you are to build a tabernacle. What is the tabernacle for? The tabernacle was a structure that communicated to the people of Israel that God himself was dwelling in their midst. God himself, who had claimed them for himself, is going to dwell with them. And as a result of that, they are members now of his family. They have his name, and they have an obligation to live according to his commands. Now, parents, you've probably said this before. This is my house. You're going to follow my rules. That's kind of what God is saying, except the reason for the, for the rules is so that you will have great blessing, because in your obedience, there is blessing. And I know we talk a lot in kind of the Reformed tradition that God's love is unconditional. And when we're talking about that love, we're really talking about His elective nature of love, that He doesn't elect you on the basis of some reward or something that you have done or skill that you've displayed or some moral attribute that you have. But there certainly is some conditionality to the blessings that you experience as a result of being a a member of God's family. You know, I I, I find it interesting, like when couples often want to get married, and they come to a minister, someone like me or, or another minister, and they say, we want to get married in the church. But they're not members of the church, for example. I've had couples do that. And I'll ask them, well, why? Why don't you just go to the justice of the peace? Because if you get married with me, I'm going to require you to go through some premarital counseling. But he won't require anything. The justice of the peace, you can just go there. You can be married tomorrow if you want it. Why do you want to get married in the church? Well, because we want God's blessing on our, we- on our marriage. And I, I was kind of scratching my head and think, you want God's blessing but you've rejected everything he's already said. What on earth connects the dots do you think that you're going to get God to bless you when you've just ignored everything he said to this point? Those don't go together. In fact, when a child lives under the roof of his parent and he lives in constant rebellion, it is not a pleasant place to be for either dad or child. It is not a blessing, in other words. (laughs) But when a child is living in accord with his parents' parameters, there is great harmony. There is an intimacy and a closeness that gets to be experienced because you're not always having to address the conflict. So what are the reasons? We do it because We are to teach our kids because it's commanded, because that's the ordained means that God has set aside to prepare those who will one day inherit His kingdom, because it will give them someplace where they can set their actual hope. They will have guidance of how to live, not listening to the internal voice of their heart, but the external structure of God's true word. And finally... The reason is to remind them not just of the commands of God, but the story of God's people and the wonders that God has done. And that's the story we see in the rest of this psalm. He goes on to talk about how God led them out of their slavery in Egypt by the fire at night and by the cloud by day, that he parted the sea, that he split the rock to bring water from it. And he goes on to talk about all these great things that God has done, and then he says, and yet the people rebelled. And they chose not to believe God and not to follow God. And that's this continuous story. And yet he did this. He atoned for their sin and then did this for them. And yet they rebelled again. And yet he did this for them. And yet they rebelled again. That's the story we're seeing and we're going, oh, wow, this is a, this is a story of a bunch of conflict. <laughs> were these people experiencing the blessing of God? Well, instead, he was bringing plagues upon them. He was bringing their enemies upon them as a form of discipline. Because each time he disciplined, it would drive them back to appealing to God to rescue them. And he would. That's right, he would every time. And by the way, I'm telling this to the parents who are probably feeling, maybe your kids are already grown, you feel like I failed, I didn't do this well. I'm weighing down the burden of guilt that you feel." Or perhaps you have, still have kids at home and you're thinking, man, you just put a huge burden upon my shoulders. I know I'm going to fail at times. And I'm going to say, yes, you're going to fail at times. That's the whole story. And yet what we see time and time again is this God who has welcomed us into His family and given us His name that we might inherit His kingdom is a compassionate and gracious and patient Father. That's what we see. And you know where the great hope comes from? I love the way this psalm ends. I've kind of paraphrased a lot of the reading, but if you go all the way down to where it ends... In verse 67, he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. I love how he ends with this model of how we are to be shepherds to our kids. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. But ultimately, the hope isn't the fact that he's providing a model for us. The hope is the fact that the end of this result of up and down faithfulness and unfaithfulness to God is the answer to that is he has assigned them David, a servant, a man after his own heart who will step in and shepherd them. Now this is highlighting the the uprightness of heart of David. The scriptures are very clear to show this, that while on the one hand David indeed was a man after God's own heart, he was also a man who failed miserably at many things, including, by the way, preparing his own children. So the reason that David is mentioned here as, an, as the upright shepherd, because he's pointing to the ultimate upright shepherd that he has appointed for us, Jesus Christ, who is called the Son of David. Everything about David and what he did right and good was pointing forward to the ultimate king that would sit on God's throne and shepherd God's people. And what does Jesus tell us? What were his last words? I am with you to the very end of the age. Hebrews tells us that where where is Jesus now also, or what is Jesus doing now for us? He is interceding for us before God. He's interceding before us, before God. He is with us always, so he is actively engaged in the work of shepherding us, even us, even now. And when he went away physically to the Father, he said, I must do that in order that I might send you a counselor who can dwell with you and guide you into all truth. He will take from what is mine and make it known to you I know specifically he was speaking to his apostles in that regard, and they laid much of that down in the Scriptures that we have today. But ultimately, that story of the Old Testament of the failure and the, and the, and the stepping in of God is showing us that ultimately, yes, yes, we will fail. But God has atoned for our failure through the work of Jesus Christ, that great shepherd, So that we might not be cast out of his family and away from his presence. But instead be cleansed and brought close. So knowing that he has shepherded you, he invites you now, in light of that, to shepherd your own children. Because they are the inheritors of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for psalms like this that both exhort us and convict us and at the same time give us reason to have hope. You are our hope. The fact that you took on the role of our shepherd. Father, I pray that you would allow these wondrous truths to sink in and to shape the way we approach daily living. In Jesus' name, amen.